Tonight is a little bit different from what we normally do in an evening. Uh, we are going to be focusing on the subject of depression and how we understand depression. And it's great to have uh, Lizzie Ling from St. Ebb's Church in Oxford to, to speak on this subject this evening. Um, so we'll be handing over to her in a short while. We'll find out a little bit about as well before she speaks. And there will be a chance of uh, Q&A at the end. But we do pray that this evening will be very helpful to you, whether you're someone who is struggling yourself with um, depression or related um, illnesses, or whether you know somebody, whether you're caring for somebody and trying to support somebody in that particular situation. But for all of us, it's good to understand it more, isn't it? And to be able to pray and support those who suffer in this area. I'd like just to start um, by reading some verses that we looked at this morning, if you were here, from Psalm 139, which are very helpful words in this particular context. Let me just read the first six verses, and then I'll pray. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you that you do indeed know us. You know us perfectly. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the things we say, the things we do, the things we think. You know our minds. And so we thank you that we can come to you this evening, knowing that you are the God who understands us, who understands when we struggle. You are the God who wants to care for us and help us when we struggle. So we do commit this service to you this evening. We do pray as we sing together as we hear from, from Lizzie later on, that we would hear from you and that you would fill us with, with hope in our lives where maybe we're feeling hopeless. So Lord, speak to us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just to say, there are some handouts to go with um, what uh, Lizzie's going to say. If you haven't got one of those, um, just uh, stick your hand up. I'm sure one of the stewards can um, can bring you a copy. But um, Lizzie, do you want to come up to to the front? Let's um, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, Thank you. Now, I understand that you were a GP for many years before you joined the staff at St Ebbs Church in Oxford. Yeah. Um, what brought about that change? How did that uh, how did that happen? Yeah. So I I was a GP down near Swindon for 11 years or so. And it was during that time that I became a Christian. Um, and um, kind of long, long story short, uh, it just changed the, my, the way I was going to look at my career and what I expected over years to come. So I think I was open to change in a way that I perhaps might not have been. And friends asked if they could um, join them in starting up a charity to do with HIV uh, um, in Southern Africa. So... Um, at the time, uh, HIV was affecting many, many people, and the really antiretroviral medication and treatment was not available. So we wanted to try and help the local church, particularly in South Africa, because that's where my friends were from, um, address the needs of HIV in their community. So I moved to South Africa for 10 years. I hadn't intended to give up medicine, but that's what happened. Um, and towards the end of that time, because I'd gone out in partnership with, the ch- with St. Ebb's Church, which is where I now work, they asked me to come back and work with them. Great. So I didn't intend this, but this is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and tell us about your work now with St. Ebbs, what you do, what you enjoy about your work. Yeah, I am, um, my official title is um, to oversee women's work at, at St. Ebbs. But I, in practice, that means fingers in lots of pies, I think. Um, so I'm certainly involved with um, Sunday services and, and being part of the team day-to-day pastoral care. Um, but also other things, and that's one of the things I particularly love is um, something called Celebrate Recovery, um, which is something that's, I've been involved in running now for four years at St. Ebbs. It's a 12-step program, if that means anything to you, uh, for people with hurts, hang-ups, and habits, and I guess we've all got some of those. So, um, yeah, it meets every week, a uh, little group, sometimes uh, for people whose, whose issues have become very entrenched, and it's just so encouraging to see how over um, months... Um, 
because some of these things we don't change quickly sometimes mm-hmm. but when we see it happen it's glorious and uh, yes and we do see change and that's a great encouragement yeah. and why do you think it's such an important thing for the church to be addressing issues like depression and mental mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. well I think we'll, perhaps we'll touch on some of that this evening but um I think when I came back from South Africa to England, I was very struck that there were many people in our churches who were affected by depression. Um, I would know people personally because somehow they would tell me, because I think because I was a GP before. The, but um, actually, I think the pastoral staff, the other pastoral staff, were quite surprised when it became clear just how many people were affected within the church. And su- suffering in silence is not good for church communities. Um, so it's been my privilege, really, to... And be part of sort of trying to blow the lid off it at ebbs a bit. And um, every now and again, I ask to, get, ask to come and speak to people like you. So thank you for having me. <laughs> yes. Well, it's lovely to have you here this evening. Let me pray for you. And Thanks then we'll so much. Thank you. you. Father God, we do thank you for, for Lizzie. Thank you for bringing her to faith. Thank you for the experiences that she's had along the, the road, uh, the, the gifting that you've given her, and her passion that she has for, for the vulnerable. Uh, thank you that she's been willing to um, serve in that area. Thank you for her ministry at St. Ebbs. And thank you for the particular interest she has in this subject this evening. That is an important one which we should be addressing as, as a church. And so we thank you for what she brings tonight. We pray for her that uh, she would be able to help us understand depression more, help us to be able to help those who are suffering from it as well as ourselves. So bless her, we pray this evening. And may we all come to know you more closely as a result of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, yes, just to say thank you again for having me. My background is in general practice some years ago now. Um, so I hope I bring something of that to this uh, session this evening, as well as something of my um, faith as a Christian, my belief in scripture, and the confidence we have in that. So we've titled this, When Life is Dark, Understanding Depression. And we're going to look at, um, let me just see if we can get these. Yes, there we go. Um, we're going to look at it in three sections tonight. So we're going to look first at the medical aspects of depression. We're going to look at the particular issues that Christians face in the context of depression. And then if we have time at the end, we're going to think about how how we can help others. Um, but first, to kick us off and just to give us a bit of an overview, we're going to look at a video clip. I think it was Winston Churchill who first called depression his black dog. And so this video clip um, is called um, I Had a Black Dog and His Name Was Depression. Would you thank you? had a black dog. His name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life just seemed to slow down. He could surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually bore me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything or going anywhere with a black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie is exhausting. Black dog could make me think and say negative things. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger and he started hanging around all the time. I chased him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. 
so I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This was my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks. So it's important to learn how to quiet your mind. It's been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave the muck behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to reevaluate and simplify my life. I learned that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humor, the worst black dog can be made to heal. If you're in difficulty, never be afraid to ask for help. There is absolutely no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life. Thank you. Well, that's just a little introduction. We'll come back to some themes in that. As we go ahead, it's uh, an easily available tip on clip on YouTube, um, uh, produced for the World Health Organization. Um, so, uh, you're, you've, I hope you've all got some of these little handouts here. Um, but just to recap, um, medical aspects of depression. Um, uh, depression really has two core or primary symptoms. Um, persistent sadness with low mood, and which may or may not be accompanied by tearfulness, um, and a marked loss of appetite or pleasure for things that you would normally enjoy. Everything's flattened, um, and flattened and lower in terms of mood. And there may be additional symptoms too, such as, as you can see, disturbed sleep. Sometimes it's difficult to get off to sleep. Sometimes you wake up very many times during the day. Sometimes you actually spend many hours sleeping. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, um, it becomes um, something that takes up rather more hours than, than previously. General lack of energy, restlessness and agitation. There is quite a spectrum between depression and anxiety and a significant amount of overlap. And today what we're going to be focusing mainly on is the depression end of the, the spectrum. Um, but often you will find that people who present primarily with anxiety symptoms sometimes have an element of depression too. Poor concentration, you'll see there. Uh, feelings of worth, worthlessness and guilt, loss of interest in sex. Recurrent thoughts of death or, and dying can affect people with depression. And sometimes it's not you that it wouldn't, people wouldn't say it just like that to you, but it would be, well, I'd be quite happy if I wouldn't wake, don't wake up in the morning. It'll be that sort of thing, going to bed asleep, hoping that the next day doesn't, doesn't come. Um, and it's depression, we need to realize, is a clinical diagnosis. So this depression is kind of on a spectrum. We all naturally feel fed up every day. Uh, not every day. Regu on, uh, you know, we can all feel fed up from time to time. Um, but that's not depression. Depression is something more s significant than that. Um, and the definition on the bottom of your first page is that you have one of the core symptoms, so the persistent sadness or low mood, or the lack of interest in normal things that make you happy or encourage you. So you have one of those together with a cluster of the others for most of the time, each day for at least two weeks in a way that means that you can't perform as you normally do. You start having problems with um, 
parenting or with work or whatever it is you normally do, this starts to interfere with your daily life. And so the doctor will use that kind of definition to make a diagnosis of depression when you go and see them. And they'll also be making sure that your depression is not due to other factors. Thyroid disease, for instance, medication, street drugs, those sorts of things can cause depression. And they'll be wanting to exclude those. There are lots of types of depression. You'll have perhaps heard some of the, the different types. We categorize it often into mild, moderate, and severe. Um, bipolar depression, postnatal depression, seasonal affective disorder, which some people get with a lack of um, light during winter months, and manic, psychotic depression. All those different types really point to the fact that there are multiple underlying causes. Um, uh, well... Or maybe they point to the fact that no one can really identify a cause, but there are multiple underlying influences to anyone becoming depressed. What I want you to do, um, if you take nothing away from tonight, uh, I want you to take nothing else away from tonight. I'd love you to take this diagram away with you. Um, this is... Um, this is just a pictorial representation of the multifactorial nature of depression. Um, different causes in different people at any one time may, may play a part. So we may have, it may be your personal history, events in childhood, those sorts of things can influence how we feel. Academic pressure, job situations, redundancy, um, job changes, house move, major life events, all those sorts of things can make a difference. Relationship, marriage issues, family pressures, whatever physical health as well all there's a myriad of different things that can influence how we feel day to day and they all play a part and pressurize our emotions as it were and if they are negative then they can push those emotions down and generally speaking we cope with that don't we we cope with stress as we pick out oh, we go and do something that, that lifts our mood for a bit and then we come back and face difficult situations but sometimes that just isn't possible and all these things pressurize us to such an extent that we reach a kind of threshold and that threshold can get crossed we tip over into depression clinical depression which is where as much as we might want to pull ourselves together there really isn't any way that we can manage it um, and uh, we, everyone's different. This threshold will be different for different people. There does seem to be a genetic tendency in depression. So families um, can have um, people, uh, it can go through generations. My grandmother had serious depression. My sister has serious depression. Um, so this ind it indicates where the threshold can shift. But once that threshold is crossed, we're left with depression, um, and that can be very, that can, that, uh, it, can, it can, can be treated, but it does need uh, to be treated once it's got to that stage. And treatment, you'll see on here, go, um, can be, start, starts at the common sense, really. We saw some of that in the clip from the WHO clip. Uh, things like don't bottle it, don't bottle up, don't bottle up or bottle it all up or go it alone. Tell people how you feel, acknowledge that you're struggling and get some help. That can, that's a great first step. Day to day, distract yourselves with things that don't demand too much concentration, maybe a bit repetitive to keep you, to keep you, keep you going through. Make sure you maintain relationships with others. We saw in the clip, didn't we, how the, the temptation was to isolate ourselves. And that won't be a, a, a helpful route to go. But maybe deliberate in maintaining your relationships with others. Eat healthily, keep active, take care with alcohol, avoid self-medicating. That can be a huge temptation um, to uh, make yourself feel brighter with something like alcohol. But avoid that. And also take care not to make major decisions while you're feeling low because it, was just, it will skew how you see things. And you may make decisions that you later come to regret. Do go and see somebody, um, a GP or a nurse or the local surgery is a great place to, to start. Now, I did look online. I couldn't quite find out because in my area, there's a telephone helpline run by the NHS for people called Talking Space. But I don't know if that is available to you guys here. But it would be something you could ring your surgery and ask, ask for advice for if you'd like to speak to somebody over the phone. So there are common sense things you can do. Then there are talking therapies or counselling. Um, uh, that can be 
access through your local surgery. Or maybe we at, at St. Ebbs, we have some biblical counseling services, a, a lady who comes to church, um, or others that you may be able to get hold of. Then this CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, you might have heard some of that. I was going to go and spend a little bit of time explaining that and going into it, but I thought that maybe we'd leave that because time's limited. Maybe we'd leave that for questions at the end if anyone's interested to know a bit more about that. But CBT can be very effective in treating depression. It sort of tries to encourage you to reorientate your, your, your thought processes in response to how you're feeling. And then mindfulness is something else that you'd find recommended um, by your GPs, and that might be something we want to discuss later. And then antidepressants. And I think, particularly as Christians, we sometimes wonder whether we should be getting into the realm of antidepressants, and I don't think we should worry about that. If this is what's going on, we need some help to get back over that threshold before we can start addressing some of those relationship issues or the job things or our spiritual health or whatever it is are those stressors that are pushing us over that threshold. We can't start to address those until we're feeling well enough to do so. And sometimes I think anti, uh, antidepressants and well, mostly antidepressants are needed to get back over that threshold so that you can start addressing some of those, those causes. Now, the risk is that people don't address causes once they feel better because life goes on and we get going and we're feeling better. And that's where we can be helpful to one another, I think. Um, as we, as hopefully we start acknowledging that we have depression, we have find friends within church to acknowledge that with and talk to us, talk to them, talk to about it, then um, we will be able to find some sort of accountability. Just not, that's, accountability is a very heavy word, but just friendship, which says, you know, how is it going now you're on the medication? Um, can we help? Is there another area where you, should you perhaps be talking about something with, with somebody at church? Um, to try and means that when you come off medication, those stresses are no longer there and that threshold is not pressurized. Does that, is that vaguely make sense? Yeah, good. Right, so that's, that's all I really want to say about the treatments side of things. Um, unless anyone's got any quick questions that I can ask, we'll save CBT and mindfulness till later. Anything? Point of clarity? No? Okay. Right, let me just carry up, catch up with my notes. Right, um, we're going to watch another clip now. We're going to move on now to that sort of section where I talked about, we were going to talk about, um, oh, this, um, depression and the Christian and um, think about what that's like. And we've got another video clip, I think. This video clip is an interview of Vaughan Roberts, who's the rector at the church I go to, interviewing a guy called Roger Carswell. I don't know if you know Roger. He's an evangelist, um, and he's suffered from depression, and Vaughan's interviewing him. And for your passion, your joy, your exuberance as an evangelist, I guess some would have been very surprised when you first spoke openly about your experience of depression. Can you tell us a little, little bit about that? Um, yes, I am a chirpy sort of character normally, I must say. Um, and yet sometimes I feel as though I'm a, a, a little like the proverbial clown. You know, that while you're in front of people and you're chatting with folk, etc., um, then, then there's a smile on the face. But I have to say that many a time I've got into the car and just cried or really struggled before going to a meeting or whatever it is. Um, for me... I don't know whether it was depression, but the first time I ever went to seek some counsel over the whole issue was when I was 16. Um, I've got Mediterranean blood in me, you can probably see it from the colour of my hands, and maybe I've got something of a Mediterranean personality, and uh, I have my ups, but I do have my downs as well. And sometimes I, I've, yes, I've got very low, and there have been periods, especially in the last, oh, I don't know, 12 years, 15 years perhaps, when I've, I've really struggled with depression in a big way and it's been extremely debilitating. I've heard some people say Christians shouldn't get depressed. How would you respond to that? Well I face that in the sense that um, in the late 1990s when I was going through a very very bad time I began to search my own heart and ask now is there some sin in my life? Is that what's causing this depression? And I'm not saying I'm perfect or sinless at all but I genuinely felt before the Lord that there was no sin that I was sort of clinging on to that would lead to a distancing of my um, closeness to God and intimacy with God so if it wasn't sin then what was it and I, I suppose I came 
came to the conclusion, all right, there is something wrong up here, frankly, a chemical imbalance or whatever it was. And um, actually, when you look into the scriptures, it seems to me that many, many of the great characters of, of scripture, as well as great Christians throughout history, have often struggled with, with depression. William Cowper, for example, the day after he wrote God Moves in a Mysterious Way, attempted suicide for the third time. Uh, I've just re- read William Hague's biography of William Wilberforce, which is a great biography. And, and there was Wilberforce, again, this mighty Christian man who was so powerfully used of the Lord, and yet struggles with depression. So, now, if we live in a fallen world, which we know we do, then it's going to affect us physically, and it's going to affect us emotionally and uh, mentally. And I suppose I'm bound up in the bundle of life, and like everybody else, I face emotional and mental problems. Tell us, when you get low, what symptoms are there of that? I start to feel low to begin with, and this can carry on and deepen over a period of days and weeks, months. I cry a lot. Um, I'm going to be honest, and that's what you want me to be, but this is a little bit harder to say. I I become really obsessed with the desire to die and suicide and um, I think obsession is the right word so it's constantly going over my mind and I think nobody would miss me if I die Um, you know my family would soon get over it and it would be the end of all the inward pain And, and, and again that is the right word there is a sort of it's not the physical pain but there's an inward pain which genuinely hurts and I think right it'd be so easy just to end my life I'd go to be with the Lord and that would be the end of that and that again becomes a driving force and I'm convinced that when one is depressed our minds my mind certainly tells me things which are not true and, and one of those things is, it would be better to die than live. Now, in the early, sort of, lighter stages of depression, I, I often quote from John 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I, I remind myself, where are these thoughts coming from? Who wants to, who, who wants to take my life? It's not God. It, it, it's, it's coming from Satan or something. But eventually, even that's not particularly... Um, helpful. I, I, I become so desirous to die. It, it doesn't mean I lose a sense of God's presence. I don't at all. I never have lost a sense of God's presence. And perhaps the, the nearest I came to a terrible moment of ending my life, um, I decided to do it at midnight, a certain place, etc. And I was convinced it would be recorded as accidental death. And I thought that'd be good because I don't want to disgrace the name of the Lord by committing suicide. So I thought, right. But about quarter to midnight, I got involved with chatting to two or three men about the Lord. And I remember looking at my watch and thinking, oh, in ten minutes' time I'll be dead. But I was talking to these men about the Lord. And it didn't seem incompatible to me. It was, obviously. But my mind was telling me things that were not true. I remember when I shared this with a psychiatrist, he said, Roger, you are sick. But then he said, which was wonderful to me, he said, but I can help you. It's one of my... I don't know, greatest moments in my life, because I thought, is there really somebody who can help me? Because you feel nobody can, and you feel nobody will ever be able to get you out of this. This is something that is permanent, and that is dreadful. But to speak truth, I'm probably going on a little bit further than you wanted you for, but, but to speak truth into your mind and heart, I have found very helpful. Psalm 40, I've opened up here, and, you know, it starts with, as the deer pants for the water brooks, etc. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, oh God, help me. And, and then he speaks to God, and then he reminds himself of what God has said. I find that is very helpful, to speak truth back into my mind, and also to just keep saying to myself, Roger, it won't always be like this. You will get through this eventually. But you don't believe it when you're going through it. And how can Christians most help? I know there are those who say really what you were hinting at at the beginning, Vaughan, that, uh, you know, how can Christians suffer like this? My experience is Christians haven't particularly been like that to me. There are two Christians who wrote to me, both of whom had had experience of, of dark depression and were very helpful. They just kept on saying, Roger, you will come through this. And the way of recovery isn't like this, but it's a bit like this. There are ups and downs towards recovery. I found that very helpful. I've got to say as well, you know, just a hug. Just, I understand. I'm praying for you. And lots of people have written to me along those lines just to say, praying for you, Roger. Not trying to lecture me, but just saying, I'm praying to, to think that people do care.
That has been very helpful. Roger, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was helpful, wasn't it? I know, I sometimes think um, it can be hard for, a Christ, for Christians. Um, as as Vaughan would say, some Christians think that they shouldn't be depressed. Christian life is one of joy. I think we know from Scripture that it's also one of suffering. Um, but still, it, that plays tricks in our minds, I think. And then there's a question of sin. How much might sin be contributing to what we're going through? And Roger touched on that too, didn't he? I thought he was very good. He reflected on his life to see if there was something he needed to repent of. And there wasn't. But And and he just accepted that. He didn't keep questioning himself. And it would be good for us just to ask that question. And if there's something obvious, we repent of it. But if there's not, we don't keep asking that question. We move on and get some treatment. Then we sometimes have to deal with medical professionals who don't share our faith and don't understand why our faith is so important to us. And it is at times like that. We ask big questions about our faith when our mood is low. Um, And so that's another reason why we need the support of Christian friends and family and the questions of, should I take antidepressants? What treatments should I engage with? Shouldn't I engage with? Those are all difficult questions when we have a Christian faith, perhaps more so when we don't. Um, I think, too, it's hard because we find it difficult to engage with God's word when we're depressed. And those resources that we normally draw on, feeding on his word, praying, fellowship with other believers, all become more difficult just just when we need them. And so what we're going to do now is to think a little bit about um, how to maintain our spiritual health. Oops. There we are, that one. So, so we put this, we put this previous diagram, we had spiritual health, and we could look at all these different areas, and those are different areas you will need to look at if you're, if you're depressed or helping somebody else with depression. But tonight, we're just going to concentrate on what we can do to keep our spiritual health good uh, in the context of depression. And I've already hinted that that is going to be difficult. And there are some things we'll manage to do and some things we won't, depending on our mood. And this is the other sort of concept chart that I want you to get an idea of this evening. So looking after our spiritual health, good times, bad times. Some things we can manage in the good times. Those things we can manage at the good times, there's no way we're going to be able to manage in the bad times. Um, But there are maybe some things we can do, even if it just comes down to resting in the God who doesn't let us go. All right. But in the meantime, I think there are some things we should do to build our resilience ahead of depression or struggle of any sort, really. Um, and then, but we'll go through each of these a little bit in turn. So to start with, um, during the good times, the idea is to build our resilience. Okay. Build our biblical theological resources. We need good foundations. So we'll be reminding ourselves of some key truths. We'll be reminding ourselves that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer and that he has promised to be there in it. I sometimes spend some time dwelling on that agony at the cross that happened when Jesus died. It was as if the Trinity was wrenched, was pulled. The, the agony that must have been at the heart of the Trinity when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus knows our pain and he knows our suffering we look at his earthly life and what he went through in order to in order for it to be sinless Uh, we think of his crucifixion itself and the effect on him we think of the unchanging nature of god's character we meditate and learn that he is good that he is powerful that he's in control that he sees, he knows, he cares. Neil spoke from Psalm 139. That's a wonderful psalm to meditate on it. If we're in any doubt that God doesn't see, know, uh, and care in all situations. And so we come to learn and appreciate that everything comes our way in the context of his settled love for us. That can be hard to understand sometimes, but we have to learn to trust it. And if we practice trust of that in the good times then sometimes some of that is there to sustain us when life is bad. His persistent, faithful, and never-changing attitude of love towards us. He's not capricious, and he doesn't play games with us. He doesn't decide we need a dose of depression or some other hardship because of something we've done or something we haven't done. He ordains everything in our lives 
for good. As hard as that may be to understand. It's true. And it means that our suffering is not without purpose. To teach us, to mold us, to draw us to himself. And I think sometimes we miss the, tr- we miss a trick, um, when we don't play along with him in our suffering. If we, if we really appreciated that it's good for us, that it's designed to draw us to him, to deepen our fellowship with him, we would turn to him in ways quicker sometimes than actually getting a bit rebellious and, um, cross with God over our suffering. He wants a relationship with us and he will use all means to draw us to himself and that will include suffering so your suffering will never be without purpose and one of those purposes will be to draw you to him um, and um, Roger mentioned didn't he um, the incredible way and I'm sure God used suffering in the lives of William Cowper John Bunyan Spurgeon and all the others to make them the men they were um, and so we can look back at history and be encouraged too that there are others um, who have suffered in similar ways. The next thing we have to do is to remember, and Roger touched on it again, that we are in a fallen world. We live between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And that is the context for our understanding depression. We don't need to understand depression as something different or separate. It is part of the suffering and the difficulty that we expect in the, constant, in the context of living in the now, not yet. I'm just going to read some verses from the beginning of 1 Peter. If, you want, if you've got Bibles on your phones or anything, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have to, you may have, you may have, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that you the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And back to verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us, in the past, new birth into a living hope, future, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade in the future. And this inheritance is kept for you who through faith are shielded by God's power in the present until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Past, future, and in the present we're kept, not by our own efforts, but through faith we're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is to be revealed. And in the meantime, these trials, verse 7, have come so the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There is purpose to our struggles, purpose to our suffering, purpose to our depression. And one day, our faith refined will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Those are things that you would want to think about and meditate on in the good times and make sure you're, you're settled with those theological concepts. Then the next thing you might like to learn to do is to engage more specifically, not just the big picture concepts, but more specifically with God's promises. Tess, I don't know if you have some favorite ones. I do. Um, end of Romans 8 I'm convinced that neither life nor death angels, demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord Amen, yeah another favourite Psalm 73 verse 26 my flesh and my heart may fail I think that's somehow, some, sometimes what depression feels like my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.
forever, my inheritance forever. So build your theological Trust these promises. Learn these promises. Write them on cards or whatever it is. I said, I've got a little key ring at home with little, little verses on that. I try and memorize them. Then learn how to engage with the Psalms. The Psalms are wonderful, um, aren't they? Uh, you can go back and back and back to them again. And uh, they vocalize our emotions in a way that sometimes we struggle to do ourselves. Um, and they're great models often of how to approach God in suffering. Um, they often have a turning point and there's rejoicing because of something that's happened in the heart or the mind of the psalmist. But not always. Psalm 88, there's no turning point whatsoever and it just ends up, you've taken from me my friend, you've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And although you might think that it's a terribly depressing way to end, it can be a strange encouragement to those who are depressed that someone else understands and can vocalize those words. That they're written in the Bible by someone who God used to, to, as part of giving us his word. It's there for a reason. Um, and that should encourage us that it's okay to vocalize our emotions, to express how we feel, even at times when we can see no hope. You've taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And it ends. Psalm 77 is another wonderful psalm. In that psalm, if you, Asaph wrote that psalm, and you hear lots, there's lots of little windows into how he's feeling. He groans. He's, God hasn't let his eyes close, so he hasn't, he's been awake all the time. He can't see any hope or any future. And then he said, then he, then there's a turning point in verse 10. Have a little look at Psalm 77 when you go home tonight. It's a turning voice, turning, uh, I'll look it up now. Turning point in verse 10, Psalm 77. Where it says, then I thought to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. And then Asaph recalls some of the events of the Exodus. Um, and God's bringing his people out of Egypt. And uh, at the end, he reflects that actually, even at the time of the Exodus, God didn't miraculously transport people over um, the Red Sea, they had to go through the waters. Um, and he reflects, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. And that's sometimes an encouragement to people struggling and suffering in many ways, including depression. That God's path is often not to take them out of the situation, usually isn't to take them out of the situation, but to walk with them, footprints in the sand as they go through it. Um, so get to build your theological foundations, engage with God's promises, learn how, read your Psalms, learn your Psalms, and then find empathy in, in, in imagery or metaphors. Now that sounds a bit of a, a bit strange. And in fact, on your resources list that I gave you, there's a book by Jack Eswine on Spurgeon and his sorrows. And it's got a lot in that book on this area. Because when people are depressed, they find it very difficult to to uh, process things intellectually, to think quickly. They you tend to lose concentration. Um, and to think critically or engage with words is sometimes hard. But to engage with, Im with images is a little bit better and with metaphors. So, for instance, I've written some of these images and metaphors down here. Um, Psalm uh, 91 refers to God as our fortress. Now, I don't know if you think of a fortress. You can let your mind wander about what a fortress might look like, but there's a definitely a feeling of security, isn't there, and safety. Um, we think of um, the bread of life as a shepherd, of us being cared for, of fed daily, a rock, solidity, a potter and a clay being molded, alpha and omega, God before and ahead of us from the beginning to the end. Some of these metaphors, they allow... Um, <laughs> they don't propose to cover every angle. It's not as if you're having a detailed discussion around metaphors. But they allow for the person to explore their own emotions in the context of that vivid imagery. And it allows for nuance and difference. Because people's experience of depression is often very different. 
Um, and But to learn to engage with some of those metaphors is a way that sometimes, when you're not feeling quite so good, you can, in, you can reflect on some biblical principles as your mind allows you to. Then maybe two, reflect on some, some the ways people um, in the Bible, God responded to people in the Bible who seemed to be depressed. Um, think of uh, uh, Elijah, for instance. He just got over his great victory at Mount Carmel, and Je- but Jezebel didn't like it, so he's on the run and he flees. And he's just had it. I mean, he must have been on a huge adrenaline high and it's hit rock bottom. And he heads for the broom tree and falls asleep and doesn't want to know, wishes he could die. And what does God do? He sends an angel who gives him a prod, wakes him up, gives him some food and water. He falls back to sleep. And um, the angel comes again and gives him more food and water before getting on the, going on the way. I think sometimes when we're depressed, we feel like God's going to come at us with judgment. God didn't come at Elijah with judgment when he was feeling low. He came with care and compassion, food and water, uh, something very practical to keep him going. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus... Um, we saw it when he's tempted in the wilderness, how angels tended him afterwards. Yes, he walked this road on earth. He was sustained as he faced temptation. Uh, he headed to the cross, but he wasn't finally rejected. He was raised on the third day and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for each one of us. And because of what he's been through, he can empathize with us in our weaknesses but sometimes you know even these things don't work when you're depressed sometimes there's nothing you can put into gear in order to help yourself get better and I haven't listed these things to make you feel guilty about not being able to do them they're just tips and pointers in the end sometimes you have to simply rest in the God who doesn't let you go now, I think we're going to sing it later. There's a beautiful song that the Gettys, an old hymn that the Gettys have revamped, I think. Uh, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. And we do have a guy who has given us his spirit as a deposit which guarantees our salvation. And he will hold us fast. Do tell others and ask them to pray for you at a time when you might find prayer very difficult indeed. But others can certainly pray. So that's a quick sort of few ideas about how to keep yourself spiritually fresh, uh, either side of that threshold line on the first chart. But just to sum up, turning over, do set depression in the context of God's bigger picture and the context of wider suffering. Where we're coming from, where we've come from and where we're going, we're in the now, not yet, and depression is just another form of suffering. We often stigmatized, I think. We often feel particular shame and guilt about depression. And that's unnecessary. Resist, I'd suggest, the temptation to go for the cause and the cure. Depression is multifactorial. Let me see. You go, you know the chart I'm talking about with the bubbles at the top. It's multifactorial and all those different bubbles, they were different sizes because they all exert different amounts of pressure at different times. They fluctuate, they come and go. Um, and what you've got to do really is to do what you can to keep all those in good health while you rest in what we know to be true about God and seek help from professionals and other Christians. So resist the temptation to go looking for the cure, the the cause, the cure. Seek advice and get help. Rest in God. I think that's all I want to say about depression itself. I have, I did imply earlier that I think that uh, we we were going to run out of time and tips on helping others. But I'll just run through this list and make a few comments because it may be that some of us in this room um, are looking after people who have depression. A great thing to do is to get informed. That initial um, uh, video clip that I used is worth re-watching. I think it's very powerful. You know, you can feel the coldness of someone and the the numbness of somebody who, who can experience depression. I don't want to make assumptions, though, about what people are experiencing if you're here this evening and you're depressed. Depression is very varied in how it expresses itself. Um, and your feelings may not be exactly how I described, but 
Um, so I apologize um, if I've made assumptions. But do get informed if you're looking after someone. Get, in, get informed about depression. Don't be judgmental. Um, we can all be tempted to use the phrase, pull yourself together. I can't understand why you feel like this. But good questions to ask yourself are not, why is this person doing that? What was the solution? Good question is, what is this like for them? And how do I feel about how they're feeling? That will move your heart in the direction of empathy as you think about those questions um, and enable you to engage in a helpful way. Do encourage the seeking of medical help. If it means going to an appointment with somebody, do go with them and encourage them. Sensitively and appropriately point to God's word, but beware of being Job's comforters. Remember those Job's comforters who had so much to say and got it all wrong. Possible questions to ask to open up a discussion on the, uh, uh, that would be encouraging from the Bible is not to come with our own text or our own passage or verse, but to ask the person, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Where do you, which psalm do you like best? And maybe there's opportunity for a little bit of discussion around that, even if it's just a reminder of one particular promise um, contained in the passage. Do encourage community. It's not good for people who are depressed to withdraw. So encourage community. It also means that you're not solely responsible for keeping an eye on or caring for that person. Looking after someone who's depressed can be quite draining, and you want to widen the network. And, you know, within a church family, we have got that network. Um, and so it's a family um, job, not an individual's job, to support somebody. Help practically, but don't take over. Um, you person still needs to be able to even if you you think they should be getting out of bed you don't need to be setting an alarm and ringing them every morning um it's 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 important that they are still empowered to make their own decisions and they have the choice choices um to do that do pray for people remember to pray um pray for that they'd have a sense of god's presence with them in the midst of what they're going through um, pray that they would get the help they need. Pray that they'd draw close to the Lord and know just how much he loves them. And finally, look after yourself too, because if it's a spouse or something like that, it can be quite draining. You do need to look after yourself too in order to be able to continue to help them. But I think that is all I have got to say. <laughs> Thank you very much um, for your time. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Lizzie. That's been very helpful. Um, I think I'm sure I can say that on behalf of everybody here. Um, I'm sure there may be some questions that people may have, and it'd be good just to give people the opportunity to ask uh, a few of those now. Um, if anybody wants to ask a question for, for Lizzie, um, Peter, we have the, the microphone at all, the roving. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I have a few friends who've struggled with mental health conditions for various amounts of time, but what I find is a lot of them have very low self-esteem yeah. And I never really know how to approach that, how to talk to them about that. Because even if you say good things, they don't always believe them. I don't know if you've got any advice on that. Yeah. There is a link between low self-esteem and depression. And whether one feeds the other or the other feeds, it's like chicken and, chicken and egg a little bit. Um, so I would want to make sure that any depression is treated. So I want the, them to consider if they, they um, describe themselves as having limited self-esteem, um, I'll just, I'd love to know if they'd considered whether depression was an issue and if it is an issue, whether it had been treated. Because if it is successfully treated, then maybe the issues to do with low self-esteem may be a little bit better. <sighs> low self-esteem, it's hard, isn't it? Our world talks about self-esteem an awful lot. I mean, fundamentally, um, I think we're only going to get a rigorous feeling of self-esteem through the gospel of Christ, which means that we acknowledge that we are weak, we are powerless, and we are sinners, but yet we know we're loved. Um, we're never going to get a, a self-esteem like, out, like that outside the gospel. Um, it's, it's hard, isn't it, because so much um, psychology um, sends a slightly different message. And while it can be useful in acute phases, I think, it is never enough. And in fact, too much of it can have a detrimental effect where people find their security 
very much in a secular worldview of rights and whatever else it is. But that's only going to let people down. So we have to hope and pray that people find their esteem in the Lord Jesus being made in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of his son, um, despite everything about them. How can we like help people if they've tried all of this, like CBT and all these different things? Mm-hmm. What can we then do? So like, if I go up to someone and try this, and they say, well, I've tried all this and nothing seems to work, how can I then encourage them? Have you... Well, I think we have to accept that we're not necessarily going to get, we're not necessarily going to see healing, a, a recovery from depression, this side of eternity. Um, it may be that, as I hinted from Psalm 77, that our path is to walk through it rather than it to be solved. And that path, we might be walking through depression as a lifelong issue um, uh, with the Lord at our side. Um, so I don't, I don't, I think we must have that perspective as we seek to help people and not get too frustrated if we're not seeing encouragements. I think there will always be, there will always be things you can do and to ensure that people are in a context that's as helpful as possible for them. So yes, to think about issues about CBT, yes, to think about issues of mindfulness, but definitely to think about issues of, um, of the gospel, of Jesus' love for them, to be involved in community. Hopefully that's Christian community, uh, to encourage and support. Um, Celebrate Recovery is this group that I'm involved with in EBS, um, and it's a group people come to each week um, where we have opportunity to reflect on how we're doing. And we do see change, but sometimes it's very slow. But as that slow change is happening, we have fellowship, and our lives have value and worth in the midst of a depression, maybe, or a low self-esteem that is not yet resolved. Uh, I don't know how helpful that is, but I think I'd suggest... We can chat afterwards if you'd like. Yeah. How do you respond when somebody says, I as a Christian shouldn't be depressed, I feel guilty about this? Um, I think I would respond by saying that's a common response. I think it's not uncommon that people feel like that. I think I would encourage them to see that um, um, it's such a it's, it's so hard it's it's not the it's not the way they should feel but ha- because um, it's something which can happen even with no particular fault of their own um, and so it's not how they should feel I would remind them I think that in either way guilt's Carried guilt for a Christian is unnecessary because Jesus has died and he's taken that guilt. And to keep holding on to that guilt is almost like, now this sounds very harsh, now you might not want to say these exact words to your friend, but the idea behind it is that if we're carrying our guilt, it's really saying that Jesus' death was not enough to cover my guilt and something else needed to be done and I need to keep carrying it myself. So I'd encourage her to see that Jesus has died for all sin, all suffering, all brokenness, um, and he will eventually put it right. Um, now, we touched on the issue of sin, and I do think sin, unrepentant sin, can be an issue underlying depression. So if we're holding on to something which is spoiling our fellowship with the Lord, it doesn't mean that we're not Christian, but it can spoil our fellowship, then sometimes that can impact our mood and can have physical as well consequences. So we must ask that question. Is there something I need to repent of? But as I said earlier, don't get too obsessive about it. And that is the risk with even asking the question that people will start to think. So it's a judgment call in how you answer these questions, I think. But there's no need for your friend to feel guilty. Um, Help her. It'll be a case of reading through Bible passages with her or trying to meet up and just speak gospel truths, really. I think so she come to see. Yeah. I've just encountered sometimes uh, more in in young people who um, say they're depressed and like one example one of my daughters, their friend has uh, lost their mum very suddenly and and they say they're depressed 
but I sometimes feel it's as if it's not okay to be sad. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's hard to try to reach someone and say, oh, maybe you're not depressed, because it, it's okay to be sad. Um, I'm not sure what I think there is I'm an asking, issue. But there is an issue about language. I mean, I'm talking yeah. about a clinical depression here. Yeah. But I do think in wider society we use the word depressed yes. to cover sadness. And um, I think, uh, again, it's, um, it's a wisdom issue as to whether, how you respond, whether you respond with, oh, should you speak to the doctor about that, or whether you respond with, oh, I, it, it must be hard at the moment. You know, I can see how that's... You must feel dreadfully sad. Um, and that it's normal to be sad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. You probably don't have to have that discussion with her. She can just... No. You can just reinterpret it in your mind that she's she's describing something that sadness may be rather than clinical depression. Yeah. Is there depression without suicidal thoughts, or should we assume that someone with clinical depression uh, always have suicidal thoughts? I um, somebody else might have more expertise in this area than me, but I don't necessarily assume that people with depression have suicidal thoughts. No. 